reporting to you live from the near north side home of Dr. Richard Kimball, a respected vascular surgeon at Chicago Memorial Hospital. Details are sketchy at this hour, but we understand that Dr. Kimball's wife, Helen, was found murdered in the home this evening. And right now, Area 6 detectives are bringing out Dr. Kimball. We assume that they are going to be taking him to a police station, probably Area 6 at Belmont and Western, where they hope that he will be able to shed some light on what happened here this evening. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show about uh, where we talk about movies, but specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis, and this is episode number 219. Our movie this week, 1993's The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford, and joining me because he hadn't seen it before, it's MC Williams. Mickey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. All right, so... Uh, you had not seen The Fugitive before. Give me kind of your history with this at all, if you have any. All right. Uh, I've got to say, the this is one of those movies that has entered the cultural zeitgeist, so I mm-hmm. had some general concept of it. Uh, I'd say most of my knowledge of it probably came from an episode of Community and an episode of Scrubs. <laughs> okay. I can see that. I can see that. Um, I'm guessing the episode of Scrubs is where they mentioned the janitor uh, Neil Flynn being in the movie and he kind of denies it. That would be the one. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end he does his whole stance and yells, Kimball. Yep. <laughs> I love that. What's the community episode for with it? I forget. I, I've only seen uh, bits and pieces epi- of community. There's an episode in one of the later seasons where Abed, who's really into film realizes he can hire celebrity impersonators and recreate scenes from classic cinema. Oh, and so he runs into the study room, followed by a Tommy Lee Jones impersonator who stops him and goes, uh, he goes, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. And then he jumps out the window. <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, that's great. So how was it that um, you didn't see this? Was it just kind of not up your, your alley? Was it, it, I mean, how did it pass you by when it came out? Because it, it was a very popular movie in 93 and through most of the 90s that I remember. Oh, I've got a huge gap in my movie knowledge in most of the 90s. My wife loves to make fun of me for it because uh, if my uh, little sisters didn't want to see a movie, I pretty much didn't see it. So I missed a lot of classic films from that era. That's fair. I can see that happening. Um, So the movie was uh, directed by Andrew Davis, who the year before this had done Under Siege. Um, And it was written by a number of people. In fact... It's kind of, in terms of like Hollywood scripts, it's kind of amazing that this movie turned out any good at all. This was, uh, I think there were something like eight or nine different screenwriters at one point that worked on the script for this. Um, It was said to have had something like, according to, I want to say it was producer Arnold Coppelson, uh, 25 drafts of the script over the years. And it was like five years of of working on this before they finally settled. Uh, at one point, Walter Hill was uh, writing a, a script and going to direct it. He did uh, 48 hours and a bunch of other stuff. And it just kept getting passed around and um, they couldn't really figure out what they want to do with it. And they finally brought on Andrew Davis and they were still working on and rewriting the script as they were filming this movie. Um, and they had a very tight schedule because they only had Harrison Ford for so long before he had to go on to another project. 
And so they were, and, and what ended up happening, and I thought this was kind of cool when I was uh, kind of doing some research on this is they ended up doing a lot of um, rewrites the day of or ad libs or changes to certain things um, and letting Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones especially kind of run with it and um, improvising a lot of scenes. And I think that that led to a lot of good tension and a lot of good authenticity in some of these scenes that I want to talk about specific scenes where they did this um, at some point. But did any of that kind of, did you notice anything with this? Did you think this was a particularly good story or script uh, at all? Or was it just sort of like, nah, it's not too bad. I mean, it's a pretty by the numbers action movie. Uh, mm. In the first five minutes, you've got a pretty good idea of where it's going to go. The big bad at the end, that caught me by surprise. Mm -hmm. But I think that was the only thing that really didn't, wasn't telegraphed from pretty much early on. Sure. Um, and, and, and I get that. Like, it's not, I wouldn't call this an, uh, an award-winning screenplay per se, but what it is, is it's great performances. Now, before we get too much into the cast and the performances, did you know this was based off of a television series? I actually had heard that, yes. I don't remember where I picked up that particular knowledge, but yeah, I remember hearing that was a, an old TV show that they remade into a film, which was a whole trend at that time. Yeah, and but this is actually a good version of that. A lot of times TV shows, <laughs> it's funny, TV shows, want to la especially back then, wanted to last long enough to get a movie. Right. That was a big thing mm -hmm. is your TV show getting made into a film. And um, it, it always had varying effects like Batman 1966, for instance, that was made after the first, I think, two seasons or one or first season of the Batman uh, series with Adam West. But that was never meant to be like high art or like a, a, a blockbuster type film. It was a campy TV show and it was a campy movie. Um, but oftentimes I feel like. TV shows translating to film kind of fall victim to a couple of issues, one of which is you're taking something that has several years of uh, material and trying to distill it down into one movie, and that's always going to be hard to do. Like It, it was the problem that uh, comic book films had for the longest time was that they would always be, you know, you, you would have 30, 40, 50 years of Spider-Man that you were trying to distill into one story in a, in a way. Um and TV shows had that same problem, but this was an example of they took the basic idea of The Fugitive, which was Dr. Richard Kimball wrong, wrongfully accused on the run trying to prove his innocence, and then they just went with that. They, they really kind of got to play around with stuff um, and go in sort of their own direction, and I liked that about this. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. It's also the only television film adaptation to ever, I think, I think ever be nominated for uh, an Oscar for best picture. Uh, Cause I can believe that. Yeah. Um, and it really, I mean, the strength of this is the performances um, chief among them is Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. Your two leads are just powerhouses in this movie. What did you think of? Um, uh, we'll start with Harrison Ford. what do you think of him in this movie? I mean, this is peak Harrison Ford action movie, Air Force One, get off my plane, mm -hmm. action acting. And it's, with the, the exception of one or two odd facial expressions that I did not understand, uh, I think he does a really good job of conveying that sort of tormented, uh, someone who is driven to help, but also trying to survive and torn between those two conflicting desires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big thing for uh, for this that I think really works is you want 
the character of Richard Kimball to not only be uh, likable, but somebody that you root for. Um, and so to have him be a doctor, obviously, is one way to do that. In the TV series, he was a, he was a pediatrician um, and not a vascular surgeon. But I think the the surgeon end of it also kind of helps with the whole idea, like, well, why would he kill his wife if he's doing fine for money and, and all of that? Um, but then at the same time, kind of surgeons are sometimes wired a little differently. But you hit it on the head when you say that, you know, him wanting to help people and sort of that occasionally kind of almost getting the better of him, like when he helps the kid um, mm-hmm. in the hospital. And so it gives you, I know for me as an audience member, it gives me a reason to root for this guy because, well, yeah, not only do we know or we believe that he didn't kill his wife, and we kind of know that based on what we saw in the flashbacks, he's also just a genuinely good person trying to help people while he's on the run. So, Yeah, we get that nice save the cat moment early on when he's uh, in the bus being having the train barrel down on him, and he's the only one who stops to help the guard who was just getting ready to uh, beat the crap out of him. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he, you know, he even like has that moment with uh, the other inmate where he just tells him to be good. Almost like mm-hmm. he's saying that because that's what Kimball would say, but also kind of understanding like there's no way I'm going to stop this guy from doing whatever he wants to do. But I'm just going to say this anyway. Like, I, I can't help it. I have to. Um, so I love that. Isn't that also a isn't that also a callback to an earlier line where one of the cops tells that guy to be good when he gets on the on the bus? I, yeah, that too. Richard, I think it was Richard Real, the the um, the the guard that survives or the guard that doesn't get stabbed. Um, yeah, and and that was great. Now, what are I'm curious where the odd facial expressions were that you saw. Uh, the one that was, that stuck out to me. There's a scene. I think it's after he gets away the second time. He's running through the woods. And he stops and kind of looks at the camera and does this weird... I think it's meant to be tormented, but it just... I don't know. Something about it, I couldn't quite figure out what it was trying to convey. I'm wondering if that's the, the shot where... So, famously, he... Um, in one of those shots running through the woods, he tore some ligaments in his knee. And I'm wondering if that, that might be the shot where that happened. And, like, it was just a look of pain. Um, because he... Mm-hmm. Supposedly, he tore the ligaments in his knee, and then he didn't want to get surgery done on it during filming. Um, the story being that because he wanted his character to then have a limp. And so he, if you notice throughout the rest of the movie, he's limping. There's, especially there's a few scenes where it's very distinct uh, that he's got this kind of hitch going on. So I'm wondering, because, yeah, I, 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 I think I remember the shot you're talking about. Um, and I, so that that's what makes me wonder if that was it. Like... I mean, just... if it's a torn ligament, that would make a lot of sense. That <laughs> explains a lot of what's going on. He's just kind of like, uh, guys, I hurt myself here, but I'm going to stay in character until the shot's done. Uh, so we can see yeah. that. I now personally. Oh, go ahead. No, as I say, okay, bye. Yeah. Except. Um, now, personally, m- my favorite, I think, part with him, because what we notice with him is uh, throughout the movie, He's very on top of things. He keeps a very level head, except in the immediate aftermath of his wife's death and he's being interrogated um, where he's just lost and he doesn't even know how to respond. And what was amazing about that was that whole scene was uh, he had no idea what questions they were going to ask him. They had him ad lib that scene. So he's sitting in there with the two detectives and there he doesn't know what questions they're going to ask him 
that's not scripted for him. Um, and so he his reactions are pretty genuine to those, which I thought kind of added to that scene and sort of the shell shock nature of what he would be going through that in that moment. Yeah, I think that works really well because he's basically sitting there with like, okay, this is your character. Your wife is dead. You didn't kill her, but you just watched her die in your arms. Go. Yeah. Um, and it's impressive, and it's a it's a great scene. And then from then on, he slowly kind of gets back to being um, kind of under control, but he never becomes sort of the cliched action movie kind of. He doesn't have a, he has like one quip. But by that point, he sort of earned saying that to Sykes on the train. Uh, we can we can maybe talk about that one later. But like, his he earns what he gets by the end of it with sort of the attitude that he has. But he doesn't start off with that, which I kind of liked. Um, I also liked that he had the beard at the beginning of the movie, and that apparently was something the producers in the studio weren't sure about because, as, as he said in an interview, you know they they paid to have my face on screen and they didn't want it covered up. Um, but they went with that. And I think it was, it was Harrison Ford and Andrew Davis that liked the idea of the beard, because if you think about it, it's a great way to have a built-in disguise that is believable because yeah, he, they, I thought that whole, yeah, I thought the whole progression worked really, really well. Uh, him being a web-worn surgeon, Greg, and then he loses beard and then he darkens the hair and he's the Harrison Ford we all know and love yeah yep and the thing is like some people will say oh that doesn't work you know, you'd recognize him anyway no honestly you take a beard off of somebody uh you change their hair just a little bit and it doesn't have to like obviously it's not going to pass scrutiny if somebody's staring at you but just walking down the street you can get by with a lot of that it, it's pretty impressive how how easily you can kind of get by with something as simple as that I'm face blind, so I struggle with that. There's a whole series of stories of people like entering celebrity impersonator contests of themselves and coming in like third or fourth place. Yeah, basically. Um, there was, uh, I mean, there's the whole conspiracy theory behind uh, um, Paul McCartney apparently had a, had a lookalike mm -hmm. replace him back in the 60s, you know, and, and that's why he started growing the beard was to hide the fact that his face wasn't exactly the same. Like little things like that happen. Um, got somebody in our chat, Catcher Kitty, who's like, if uh, Travis shaved his beard, I'd wonder what pod person took over because my beard, it changes the shape of your face. Um, it's, it's something like as simple as putting on a hat and walking away. And it worked to his advantage because there's another improvised scene later on um, where that worked out. And I, I want to get to that. I don't want to give it away just yet because uh, we have some more actors to talk about first. Um, but there's another very, uh, improvised and famous scene, um, in this movie that, uh, I love the fact that they, how they did it. And uh, I definitely want to get your thoughts on that, but yeah, Harrison Ford just, and he's, you know, he's Harrison Ford. He's a leading man. You, you root for him anyway. Um, and he just commands, he's a commanding presence on the screen, um, without having to, he's a very subdued commanding presence, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's got that easygoing charisma that just makes you want to root for him, particularly when he's already a good guy and a nice guy. You want the best for him. Yeah, yep. And then the flip side of that is Tommy Lee Jones as um, U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard. He is very mm -hmm. loud, very bombastic, earned his Oscar for this. He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and he's phenomenal in this movie. Um, 
as this driven U.S. Marshal that has one job, and his job is to find the catch the fugitive and bring him in. He doesn't care about anything else. That's all he's going to do is catch the fugitive and bring him in. And I thought he was great. What did you think of Tommy Lee Jones in this? Oh, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. He does such a, a fan, amazing job of giving you this marshal who will do anything and risk anyone to get his man mm-hmm. and just has this like this gut instinct of something is not right yet. We haven't got our guy yet. Yep. Oh, he's he's so good. Now, here's a cool thing, too. If you like that character, I have another movie for you to watch because there's actually a sequel mm-hmm. to this. Really? There was a sequel made to The Fugitive called U.S. Marshals that just follows Sam Gerard and his team of marshals. Everybody's back um, in a sequel where this time The Fugitive they're trying to catch is played by Wesley Snipes. Um, it came out okay. in 1998. What's weird? What's weird? I've seen that one. <laughs> you have, really? That's uh, Yeah. And, I mean, if you didn't know, because there's nothing saying, they don't reference this movie, they don't, you know, it's not The Fugitive 2, U.S. Marshals, or anything like that. It's just called U.S. Marshals. It's actually, I like that they did that, because it's a completely standalone movie anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's that's one that a, a lot of people either haven't seen or just had no idea that it was a sequel. So, there you go. Um, <laughs> he, he reprised his Oscar-winning role in a, in a movie five years later. Um, which I I, uh, I adore that movie. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. Oh, it's a it's a great movie. I think I picked that one up at Blockbuster back when Blockbuster was still a thing. Yep. <laughs> Having zero knowledge of it except I like Tommy Lee Jones. I like Wesley Snipes. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, Tommy Lee Jones just he so he ad libbed a lot of his lines. Um, he rewrote a lot of stuff on set uh, in the moment. Um, most famously is um, the I don't care moment uh, mm-hmm. where. They're in there, and I think the scripted line was like, that's none of my concern or something like that. Um, and he was like, the, I think this sounds better, and they went with it, and it's it's perfect. It perfectly sums up the character Sam Gerard in that moment. He doesn't care at all about any of the, the circumstances behind it. He's just there to bring the guy in. That's his job. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care whether you're guilty or innocent. All he cares about is that he's sent to hunt you, and he'll get you. Someone else will figure out whether you're innocent or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just love that. I also love like when we meet him for the first time and he comes walking up with his whole crew and they're at the aftermath of the the bus thing, which we're definitely talking about that here. Um, mm-hmm. And the one sheriff comes up to talk to him. And he just, you know, pulls down the Velcro and shows off his badge. And he's like, who's in charge? And they they send him over. I love that moment where he first walks up to the sheriff who is talking to Richard Reel's character, the, the other corrections officer who's telling mm-hmm. just just spinning a story. And, of course, we know what happened. Um, but he goes to talk to the sheriff, and the sheriff's like, I'll be with you in a minute. And they just cut to uh, Sam Gerard, and the look on his face would just turn you to stone, where he's just got this look of like, oh, oh we're going to play it that way? Fine, I'll sit here and wait for a second, <laughs> and you're not going to like what I have to say next. Um, I just love that. as like Because Tommy Lee Jones just has one of those faces. He, like, you don't want to make it, You don't want to upset him. You don't want to disappoint Tommy Lee Jones because you're going to get looked at like that, and then you're just going to feel like you're about a foot and a half tall. Uh, oh, yeah. His expression gave away perfectly. I already know that everything you're saying is a total load of nonsense, and I'm going to let you keep digging. Since, since you were being a jerk, I'm going to let you keep digging so that it hurts that much more when I reveal just how wrong you are. Yes. Uh, absolutely love that. Um, so... 
Tommy Lee Jones ends up uh, just, you know, he's chasing him all the way through. But what's really cool about this, and this is something that I don't think, I think is done in better uh, thriller action movies and um, kind of stories involving police detectives. They do actual detective work. We see Mm -hmm. them, we see them going over evidence, discussing it in a room instead of just like, Either they don't just have the epiphany or they don't just do the action stuff. They do the real detective work of finding this guy. And I love that. That's that they did the same thing in U.S. Marshals. Um, and this movie does it to a just to a T. I think it's really well uh, because I, that's what I want to see out of cops in movies. It, it, it makes the cops into they're not superhuman. They're normal people. They're just doing their job and they're doing it very well. So the one the moment that really drove that home for me, I think, was when they're sitting in the office and they're getting the call from Kimball. And they initially like, oh, it's another Kimball? Ah, it's another Kimball. Mm-hmm. Just driving home that idea that they're getting all these crank calls now that it's gone media. But as soon as he gives that one detail, they're like, they're on it. They understand what's going on. It's it's a really nice bit of police moment. Yep, there's that one. There's also, um, you know, they do the the pronoun game where they're like, ah, he shacked up with somebody. And you're thinking it's right after we mm-hmm. see Kimball get in the car with the woman. And so the movie's making you think, oh, it's Kimball. And then immediately, or, and, and then once we get to the house, you realize that it's not. It's like, oh, that's right. They've got other fugitives they've got to find too. They're not just going after this one guy. And, oh, yeah. That scene actually made me really angry initially because they're like, oh, we got this call. He shacked up. I'm like... How in the hell did they figure that out that quick? Exactly. And then when you're like, oh, it was a head fake, you're like, oh, okay, no, I'm on board now. I'm mm-hmm. super on board. Yeah, yep. Uh, and it makes you think of, now that you know that uh, U.S. Marshals is a sequel, it very is, it's very reminiscent of that opening scene in U.S. Marshals, um, except mm-hmm. that we don't have Tommy Lee Jones in a chicken costume here, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but it's great because it also gives you uh, – it doesn't take away from the pursuit of Kimball while also giving us more insight into who uh, Gerard is because he has that moment where he shoots the the perp that's got um, uh, Noah. It's got the young kid. And then they have that conversation afterwards, which also was apparently rewritten and ad-libbed by Tommy Lee Jones. The the bit where he's like, you're, you're, you're okay. Can, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I don't bargain. And I was like, oh, that's just, it's just perfect, a perfect moment of like, yep, that's who this guy is. Don't mess with him because, because uh, he's going to, he's going to end things one way or the other. Um, so, but it also shows you how much he cares about his team. He's yeah, like that tough. I mean, he, he does care about his team, but not quite as much as he cares about getting his guy. No, nope. It's like getting the, pro, getting the fugitive is number one. My team is number two. Or one A, but you know, don't mess with the team. But he's he, Sam's going to get his guy anyway. So, yep. Um, and then uh, we had a few other actors that popped up in this that you probably recognize from things. Joe Pantoliano is Cosmo Renfro, um, who he's always a win to have in a movie. Um, and I, I just adore him. And he, <laughs> Cosmo, is a character that just makes you laugh. Like he's got those great moments when he's reciting what happened to the one doctor. And he's like, his car, his mm-hmm. body was smashed into the guardrail separating the highway from Lake Michigan. Yuck. Like, <laughs> I love him. Um, 
Julianne Moore is in this for about five minutes, and she gets like one of the top billings. Apparently, earlier drafts of the script had her character much more involved, and there was some romantic interest between her and Kimball. And they ended up they shot some of it, but they ended up cutting a lot of that. And I'm glad that they did, um, because uh, having any kind of a romantic angle in this, I think, hurts it uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah, given that his whole drive is trying to prove that he didn't kill his wife, I think a romantic interlude would have just undercut the emotion. Yeah, and apparently it was her character and also uh, Jane Lynch. Her character what? was going to have some sort of romantic connection, and they they cut that completely. That was like in an earlier draft of the script. And I, I read that, and I was just like, no, that would have been horrible. Um <laughs> But it was really cool to see Jane Lynch in this. I thought that was awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, that was one of uh, kind of those. I wrote down a couple of names of like a- actors that showed up that. And now, Neil Flynn, you knew already. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, But that's a, always a fun one. Jane Lynch, Julianne Moore. Um, I actually recognize somebody this time watching it. And I, I have this weird ability that I will. You say you're face blind. I will see the face of an actor sometimes and be like. Wait a minute. And, and it'll be on screen for seconds. I'll be like, hold on. I know who that was. And it was one of the reporters when they're in Sam Gerard's office. Um, and there's a bunch of reporters talking. One of them is played by an actor named David Peskesi, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, mm-hmm. He was just recently in She-Hulk, uh, the series, as Mr. Immortal. Uh, Okay. Um, he was also in, uh, I remember seeing him in like uh, a movie a few years ago, um, Angels and Demons, and he was in uh, The Mandalorian, uh, or no, Book of Boba Fett. Um, but he's he's got a face, uh, he reminds me of somebody I grew up knowing. And so when I see him in something, I'm like, wait a minute. And I, no clue that he was in this. I'm like, hold on just a second. I had to go and look. And I'm like, sure enough, it was him. I go, wow, that's, oh, that's, uh, that's a random one. And then Richard Reel as the corrections officer who just, his character he's like he wants to be the tough guy but he just isn't he's no good at being a tough guy corrections officer uh and tries to run away and i love that well maybe he survived i don't i'm not sure Um, um the character the so you mentioned how uh the twist at the end of the doctor uh charles nichols who was the big bad guy um you didn't see that one coming you know who was originally uh, intended to play that character is um, Richard Jordan. And uh, he was in The Hunt for Red October. He was the politician. Okay. Um, he's the guy that tells uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, I'm a, I'm a politician, which means I'm a liar and a cheat. That guy. Um, yeah. He would have been so good in this role. Um, I really feel like, because he's got that he's perfect as like the politician or the smarmy doctor where like he's very charismatic, but at the same time you, you kind of don't like him. Cause he's also, he's like charismatic, but slippery and slimy. He can pull that off really well. Um, unfortunately he, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Um, and he'd only shot a few scenes before that happened and he had to back out and he passed away. I want to say it was three weeks after the film debuted. Um, but he would have been so good in that role. Uh, however, I did like uh, Jaron Crab, or uh, I'm going to pronounce it that way. I'm sure it's wrong. Dutch actor. But the guy they had that played uh, Nichols had that same kind of feel to him. Um, you sort of... Yeah, I love the... 
I love the Nichols we got, but you're right. The other guy would have been amazing. I, Richard, I just, oh, I want to see the version of this movie with Richard Jordan in it because I love him. And it's he was taken from us way too young. Uh, but he would have mm-hmm. been really, really good. Um, yeah, it's just a fun, uh, it, it's a, it's a fun cast of people, um, and carried by Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, they just do all the heavy lifting. Um, but even, uh, you know, Ron Dean is detective Kelly. He shows up in a lot of Andrew Davis movies. Um, I think he was in chain reaction as well. And a couple of the smaller ones, um, and the other detectives. So the two detectives that are interviewing him in the beginning of it, uh, one is Ron mm-hmm. Dean and the other is Joseph Casala who is an actual Chicago police detective. Um, oh, really? Which is partly why he's not the greatest actor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he uh, he's an actual Chicago PD. He's in U.S. Marshals. He's in um, a bunch of Andrew Davis movies because a lot Andrew Davis set a lot of his films in Chicago. He's from there. Um, and that was another thing I really liked about this was setting it in Chicago. I feel like just had like a cool feel to it. I love – I'm from the Midwest, so I really like Chicago as a city anyway. Um, but it's it's got that look with the river going through the middle of it and just sort of, I don't know, there's something about things set there that I kind of like. Yeah, it gives you that, that nice cool. bleak feel. Mm-hmm. And setting at the time of year that they did, which was right around St. Patrick's Day. Now, this was a cool scene. So the St. Patrick's Day parade scene um, was really, really neat. And one of the cool things about it was they filmed during the actual St. Patrick's Day parade. Oh, really? That's cool. They got permission to film during it, and they didn't script any of it. They they kind of, on short notice, decided they would use that as a set piece. And so um, they didn't script anything. They just had Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and a couple of actors and then some Steadicam operators just go out into the parade and do whatever they were going to do. And the Steadicam guys just trying to keep up. And so that's another one of those scenes, kind of like the interrogation scene that feels really authentically real because they're not, it's not staged. It's not a bunch of extras having to be in certain positions and hitting marks. It's, it has that realistic feel of like this guy just slipped into a parade. And then you realize kind of how easy it would be to lose somebody in a big sea of people like that. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, slip on a hat, slip off a jacket. You're a totally different person. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking for somebody with dark hair and a brown jacket. Suddenly he's got a blue hood and a green hat on and he's, you know, he's amongst a bunch of other moving bodies. It's very easy to slip away. So I loved that. I liked that idea of, you know, a getaway during a parade like that. And Kimball is smart enough that he could do that uh, and sort of use that to his advantage but then to be able to film during the actual St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago, I thought was awesome. Um, and so that was yeah, a really a similitude to the uh, to the whole scene that plays. I didn't realize that was a real parade, but it felt real in a way that was really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes you know you'll have a fake parade uh, going, or you'll you'll set something up. Um, but to have it just be during the real parade, and like they shot. Some of the stuff leading up to and coming out of, I think they shot uh, the morning of, and then they shot mm-hmm. during the actual parade. Apparently, it was like 20 degrees that morning or something, so everyone was just freezing because uh, it's Chicago in March. Of course, it's going to be cold. <laughs> um, but I love that. And they did a lot of aerial overhead shots, too, a lot of like helicopter shots. That I think t- today you would probably do with a drone, uh, but the same idea to give it that sort of give you that needle in a haystack feel. Um, of like, oh, we're following this guy, but then how quickly you could 
you could just lose them. It's it, I, I just I dug that a lot. Um, there was a few shots they did that in uh, that I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, they did a really good job of. Yeah, you know, they kept the tension up because he kept slipping away, but in ways that you always felt. Yeah, I buy this. I buy that he could slip away. He's smart enough to do this, and you're watching it unfold, and you're like, yeah, I lost him three times in this scene already. Yep. Yeah, and that's the thing. They made him, he's smart, and, and obviously you have to be intelligent to be a physician and to be a surgeon. There's a certain level of intelligence involved in just getting to that point anyway. But he's also, uh, he's got a little bit of um, street smarts to him, and he's he's wise enough to know how to use that intelligence, but they never made it feel unrealistic they never made it feel like he was too smart like he was hollywood smart you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah they, they kept his his abilities very grounded both his fighting ability for which was realistic for a doctor and yeah his ability to be cunning and wily and sneaky yep and uh and i appreciated that quite a bit um th that was one of the things andrew miller or um he he did a lot of um andrew miller no that's not right Andrew Davis. Andrew Davis was uh, very adamant on having this movie feel real and trying to ground it in as much realism as possible, both in sort of the story that's going on, which does get fantastical and, and sure, it goes a little crazy, but nothing, I don't think, like completely mind-breaking, but also in the way they shot it and what they did and how they achieved a lot of the look of it. Um which comes down to things like shooting during an actual parade or the scene in uh, at the dam when uh, when Harrison Ford goes and you know he looks over the edge and he's looking down that was real um, they had that pipe set built on the back of a truck at the top of the dam and they would back it up and have it be over top of the dam and then they just had like a um, a wire on Harrison Ford's leg. Um, into his shoe and I think with Tommy Lee Jones as well so he could actually stand right at the edge there and look over and then when they were done shooting they could just back the truck up I wondered about that I was like surely they're not just putting actors around the edge of this deadly drop and just going well, don't fall <laughs> so kind of but in a safer environment because it wasn't just the edge of the dam it was inside the back of a truck in a set but still he was you know able to look over and look down at that which I thought was crazy um <laughs> because that's a long way down. Uh, but they also did, um, like, that bled over into one of the most famous sequences in the movie, which is the bus uh, rollover into train collision, um, mm -hmm. which isn't as long as I remembered it being for some reason. When I watched it this day, it's been a few years since I'd seen the movie, and for some reason I remembered it being, like, very drawn out, and it's kind of not like it's a few minutes. It's very tense, um, but it's not like it's super, super long. But what's fascinating about it is it's not only all practical effects, it's all full size practical effects. They tr they ran a train into a bus uh, on train tracks in North Carolina uh, to achieve that. I was that. wondering about that. Because, yeah, at, particularly at the end when they're shooting the detectives interviewing outside, I'm like, that looks like they really just ran a train into a bus. And apparently that's what they did. Which, and it's still available as a tourist destination somewhere in North Carolina. You can go check it out. Um, they have the wreckage still oh, there. Cool. But they had, like, you would think, oh, well, maybe we'll do it with miniatures. Or today it would be a lot of CG and blue screen, green screen. 
they blue they did blue screen Harrison Ford jumping. That wasn't actually like he was blue screen and composited in jumping off of the bus. But the train itself was a full-size locomotive hitting a full-size bus, um, which apparently was cheaper than building miniatures for some reason. I'm not sure how, but sure, we'll go with that. Um, that is shocking to me. <laughs> it really is. Uh, and they had um, they consulted a bunch of people and made sure that everything was going to look right, and they had one take. That was it. They were only going to get one chance to do it. Uh, so they set all their cameras up, and they did it, and it was supposed. the train was supposed to hit the bus at 35 miles an hour. The train hit the bus at 42 miles an hour. And uh, so that happens, uh, but everything went the way it was supposed to go. Uh, they actually had one of their cameras, I think, inside the bus, the camera. The, it took them like two hours to dig it out, but all the footage was good. Um, and they destroyed a couple of other cameras, uh, doing that shot. But I'll tell you what, it was worth it because that is, that is such a fantastic looking thing. Still, this movie will turn 30 years old this year. And because it's a real train hitting a real bus and they only had to composite in, you know, a couple of things, it has the, it just, it aged really, really well. And it looks so good. That's the beauty of practical effects. Like so many of those movies from that era where they were using the models or using the puppets or the like the real practical effects just hold up in a way that modern like movies from like 2005 don't. Yeah, we've reached a point, I think, where CG is being not only has the fidelity gotten good enough, but we're also doing so much of like practical extension where they're taking mm-hmm. a thing that exists and they're extending it and they're doing they're going a, that extra little bit with CG um, that when it's done well, it does age pretty well. But you're right. Those the kind of late 90s to, to like 2010s, uh, a lot of that, they, it was a tool that we were still trying to figure out exactly how to use it and what its limitations were. And I think sometimes it just like any new tool got overused. Um, mm mm-hmm. And but you're right. Those practical effects, whether it's you know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies with the with the suits that they uh, put everybody in, or oh, yeah. um, you know anything like that, uh, those practical effects just age really well because there's a physical thing that the camera is is looking at, and it really it took a while to get the photorealism of what you could generate in a computer to look as real um, and not mm-hmm. look that. Like I remember the first time I saw The Mummy Returns and they had that full CG version of the Scorpion King that walks out at the end with the rock and it looked like a toy. It looked like it was covered in plastic. Um, that was literally the example that was in my brain. <laughs> See, we're on the same wavelength here. Um, but it was like, it's no fault of the animators. They're doing the best that they can. Just the tool wasn't good enough then uh, to mm-hmm. make it look photo real. And when you're doing something like Toy Story, or you know, um, a fully CG animated thing that's completely different. You're stylizing it, and you can get away with a lot. Uh, there, there isn't the same expectation or uncanny valley um, that you get. Mm-hmm. But we're getting so much better with the, that stuff now. That uncanny valley is getting a lot harder and harder to, to find. Um, but it's still, in a lot of ways, not a substitution for a practical effect. Um, if you can do it, if your budget allows for it, and if your time allows for it. And in this case. They didn't really have a huge budget, but it was a it was big enough. I think it was 40, 40 or forty two million dollar budget for this film. 
but it was time. They just didn't have a lot of time, so they kind of were forced to get it done right in one take, and it worked. And you get uh, an amazing, tense um, action sequence that is still just as uh, tense and just as watchable now 30 years later. Oh, yeah, it holds up so well. Um, and and one of the things I noticed, especially this watching, because I'm paying more attention to it, um, is the the pacing of this movie is really good. It's two hours and ten minutes long, which for some people can be too long. Um, what did you think of like the length and the pacing of the movie itself as a first-time viewer? I'll admit I went in going, oh, this is an early 90s movie. It's going to be a tight 90, 95. <laughs> nope. Uh, but I think the pacing worked really well. It, it managed to keep that tension up while also giving that sense of there's a little bit of distance between the scenes. That he's getting on the harder he is to find. It really makes the whole thing feel very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I uh, I noticed that the first hour you got, you have the opening and then the trial. And uh, if you notice, there's like opening credits and then they don't, there's none for a while. And then suddenly like credits again, <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, 10 more minutes into the movie or something. But you have all of that leading up to the action sequence with the train. And then it's like chase, 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 chase until about the hour mark. And you're sort of like edge of your seat, like waiting, waiting, just you know, white knuckling it through a lot of that because it's, it's the chase. Uh, first, you got the action sequence, and you've got all right, we got to find this guy, and then it's the tension of him in the in the hospital. Then he takes the um, takes the ambulance. There's the helicopter chase, followed by the chase in uh, the tunnel, and then the movie kind of it slows down, but it doesn't feel slow like it keeps it it sort of lets the tension release and then starts to slowly build it back up but now instead of it being this like heart pounding tension in the in the sense of like all the stuff is happening at once it's these scenes of like this dude's gonna get caught because he's doing like crazy stuff like going to the county lockup in the middle of the day was surrounded by police and to to see this one-armed man that was in lockup um and you're just thinking the whole time, like, this guy's going to get caught. He's going to get caught. And he doesn't until Tommy Lee Jones, who still, if you notice, has to do a double take. It's not like he recognizes him right away. Um, has to kind of do that double take. And then we get another chase scene. And so this sort of this this tension release ratcheting that keeps going on. And I thought that that helped a lot. It kept, for a two-hour and ten-minute movie, it kept you glued to it the whole time. It never slowed down. It never got dull or boring. Um, even when he's, you know, doing, yeah, even when he's doing stuff like just looking up information on a computer, they managed to keep the the tension there a little bit. Well, yeah, because when he's looking up on the computer, he's in the office with the blinds closed, with the doctor right outside, going giving him weird looks. They keep a, there's always a timer running. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, uh, and that's that's just good thriller action filmmaking. And I think Andrew Davis knows what he's doing there. It's kind of a bummer that he doesn't have. Um, his career kind of petered out after this. Um, as I mentioned, he did uh, Under Siege. Have you seen Under Siege? I have not. That's a very good um, action movie. Don't let the fact that it's uh, Steven Seagal in it uh, dissuade you because um, he's 
he's a dingus, <laughs> and some of his movies, a lot of his movies aren't very good, but th- that's actually a pretty good one. Um, but he, uh, the last film that Andrew Davis directed was The Guardian in twenty in two thousand six. Um, he uh, he did uh, Collateral Damage with um, Schwarzenegger. Uh, Holes was one that he did. Uh, a Perfect Murder with Michael Douglas. Chain Reaction, I think, is an underrated one. That was the uh, a movie he made right after this, a couple years later, uh, with Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman. Um, and uh, I I like that. It's a pretty. It's an underrated. It's very similar to this in like style. Um, that sort of thing. He was good at doing that. Um, but he just he didn't have a very long directing career, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because uh, I think he's got some ability. But for whatever reason, he just sort of moved on. Um, did other things, but, uh, but this was definitely, I mean, this is his crowning achievement. Like this is very, very good. Um, and sort of earned a lot of the praise that it gets, uh, which, which I do enjoy. Um, did you have a favorite kind of scene or moment in the movie? I mean, the, the whole scene in the, the tunnel going off the edge of the dam is such a cool scene. It's such, it's so iconic for a reason. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the the jump off the end is not super believable. That's definitely the, probably the most heightened of the heightened reality of the film. Yes, but I really love the follow up though, where everyone's like, "Oh, he's dead." There's a one in a million chance that he survived. He's like, "Well, then it should be really easy to catch him, shouldn't it?" <laughs> yeah, I love that. And you're right. That is that is the moment you have to really suspend disbelief. Is it possible to survive a fall like that? <laughs> possible, not very likely. Um, but it does make for a great set piece. They use something like six dummies, I think, for that um, for that fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and it's then it's Sam being Sam Gerard and just like, nope, he he's not dead till we have a body in hand or we catch him. So start dragging the river, start getting uh, you know everybody in here. Like I, I I adored that. That's that's a good scene. And it's what what's not, what's cool about it is again that's the culmination of like three or four different chases leading up to it. Um, I really liked where he's driving the ambulance and they're following him in the helicopter um, because that whole scene, all we have is the visuals of the ambulance moving through traffic um, and the helicopter and Tommy Lee Jones. We're getting no other dialogue. He's talking to people the whole time, but we're only getting his side of it. Um, And I think that also sort of added to the tense nature of that scene uh, to not keep cutting away to other actors. You know, he's talking to Cosmo, he's talking to Biggs, but you never see them. You just hear him barking out orders or or responding to whatever's going on. And I kind of like that. Quite yeah, a bit. it really gives you the feel that you're sitting in the co-pilot's chair, listening to this whole conversation, taking part in the chase. You're trying to keep eyes on him as well. Mm-hmm. You can't hear what anyone, you don't have a headset, you can't hear what's going on. So it, it makes it feel like you're along for the ride. Yeah. And apparently uh, you really were along for the ride because the cameraman couldn't fit inside the helicopter. So they had him strapped <laughs> to the side of it. <laughs> Which, uh, that tracks. Again, like, uh, man, to be to be in Hollywood sometimes, you just got to think, like, that guy's that guy did not get up that morning thinking, well, I'm going to get strapped to the side of a helicopter and uh, flown around for a little while. But there he was. Um, yeah, I love that. And then, like, it, it goes into the tunnel, and you think, oh, they've caught him. There's no way he's getting out of this. But he found a way out, and they keep going. And it's just it's such a great build-up, build-up, build-up to that just iconic moment of I don't care. And I, I did capture some audio I want to play, and that's one of them. Uh, there's a lot of quotable Tommy Lee Jones moments in this. Um, mm-hmm. I think for me, 
a favorite moment. It's tough to not say the tunnel thing, but there is something to that opening interrogation montage moment because you're cutting between real live reactions from Harrison Ford who doesn't know what questions are coming. And so he's remaining in character. He gets a little bit of Harrison Fordy when he starts pointing at people, which is a thing he loves to do. Um, but he's still like, he's not in command of that scene like he wants to be, but he's trying to capture the command of it. And we're getting intercuts to the flashbacks of him remembering the night leading up to everything that happened. Um, and so seeing the different, um, seeing the change in his character from like early on when he's being a little bit playful, but he's, he's that suave Harrison Ford, uh, type character to now he's like a little frazzled and he's shell shocked and he doesn't quite know what's going on. There's something about his performance in there. I just really, really, really liked. Um, so there's so many good moments in this. Yeah, that opening scene really does give you a good sense of a surgeon who is past his limit but is used to operating in that high-pressure situation is trying to control the OR mm-hmm. and knows he's not in control, but it's like he's losing the patient. He knows he's losing the patient, but he's trying so hard to get it back, and he yes. knows he's not doing it. Yep, and uh, and what we then see is after that, he is able to command and keep control in most situations he's in from then on out, regardless of how difficult they get. So it tells you just how much uh, that moment of coming home and finding his wife like that really shook him. Um, mm-hmm. And then the determination he had to figure things out. Plus, I, I, I also very much like the scene on the subway train. Um, yes. Because just like everything else, it's a slow burn tension build where he sits down and you see the guy reading the paper, and he notices his picture on the front page. And Kimball kind of has that look like, ah, oh, crap. Well, maybe if mm-hmm. I don't, uh, you know, if I just act casual, the guy won't notice. And the guy slowly, like, looks at the front of the newspaper, looks up, looks back, looks up. And then kind of gets up and slowly walks away. And you can tell Kimball's just like, ah, oh, jeez, I've been made. What am I going to do now? And then Sykes shows up out of nowhere. The one-armed man. The man that he's been trying to find all this time, you know, has followed him onto the train. And we get... One of my favorite things in movies for the history of movies is Harrison Ford punching someone <laughs> because yep. there is no one that gets punches delivered the way that he does. It feels, I don't know if it's in his rider, if he's going to be in a movie and a punch is going to get thrown or what, but they always, the sound design and the visual of Harrison Ford punching someone in the face feels like he's hitting them with a slab of concrete. It's amazing. Uh-huh. It just, I, I just love that uh, so much. And he does it like almost straight on to camera. I think I even had a note. I'm like, well, we get the Harrison Ford punch. Like, that's, I'm, I'm great. Uh, and so there, that, that was great. Plus, you know, the Neil Flynn cameo um, is a lot of fun. And then he get, we get the one little quip, the one little one liner. He's like, you missed your stop, and then walks away. Um, because there's Kimball has fully kind of come into control of the whole thing. So I just adored that. Um, followed by, and and what's funny is he punches him in the face like that, but he's it's not like he's a, a great fighter or anything. I mean, Harrison Ford was 50 when he made this movie. So it's not like he was a young guy. Um, and he, he honestly moved and looked like a 50-year-old, especially when you find out that he had damaged knees because of making the movie. So... I kind of, I like that quite a bit. 
Um, yeah, he, he really gets that one good Harrison Ford punch, and then it's just a scuffle that he is kind of lucky to come out on top of. Yeah, it's an action movie where our big action set piece, climactic fight, are two middle-aged doctors awkwardly scuffling on the roof of a building. And it's fantastic. And it's so good. It's perfect. <laughs> and that whole scene in the laundry at the end is great because oftentimes, and I'm sure you've noticed this, especially in, in poorly directed action films, you lose sense of where people are in relation to each other in some action sequences. Mm-hmm. Don't, do, you, do you ever notice that and you kind of hate that where you're like, I don't know. Like Transformers movies, I, I love Michael Bay in terms of like an action director, but there are times where he loses sight of where everyone is, uh, it feels like. And if you ever notice that in an action movie, you're like, wait, how did, but he was over, how did he get there? How did they, I like, you don't know. In this case, that works to their advantage and it's done purposefully. You don't know where anyone is in this relation to each other. So when Kimball's moving around and he's looking and he sees a shadow move, what is that? And it turns out to be like a janitor or something, somebody working on the floor. But he doesn't know that. It could be Tommy Lee Jones. It could be uh, Dr. Nichols. Um, it could be any one of them. And I, I liked that because, once again, tension. The, this movie is all about keeping that, that tension at a nine and a half at any given moment. Yeah, they do such a good job with both the lighting and the sound design in that scene where you, you're getting this sense of how hard it is for them to un, to know where anyone else is. You're hearing the little sounds, you're seeing the little flickers, and they don't know any more than you do, whether that's a person, whether that's just a swinging light. What is that? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, you know, Tommy Lee Jones going into his whole, he's just going to start yelling for him. Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones is one of the great Hollywood yellers. Um, mm-hmm. I put him like he is in that upper echelon of actors that can yell. It's like Tommy Lee Jones, Gene Hackman was a master at that. Um, mm-hmm. he just, he yelled better than anybody. Sam Jackson is the same way. Samuel L. Jackson yelling. Um, in fact, I think, I think if you put the three of them in one movie and had them yell at each other for a while, like things would, it would just sort of collapse in on itself. Like it would be too <laughs> much in one moment. But, um, I just I I really like that, and again, by not knowing who's where, when then suddenly Cosmo is in a spot because he's the only other person in there, um, and you sort of forget about him for a second, and then it's like, oh yeah, no, he's there. Then he gets whacked in the face by that eye beam uh, that they have for whatever reason, just hanging in the laundry room. But that's fine. I mean, we had um, a guy we had I a mean, guy that- jump off a dam, so whatever. I mean, that one looked like a, a hoist beam, which, I mean, I'm an engineer by day, and I believe that. I think that's real. Okay. Still getting hit in the face with that, though. Oof. Yikes. <laughs> I think, what was it? Harrison Ford didn't like the fact that he survived that or something, so that's partly why they have Kimball and Gerard drive away and then the stretcher come out with Cosmo. Uh, Ooh. Was sort of like Harrison Ford. He didn't think that the character would have survived getting hit in the face that hard. Um, which I mean, I could see him surviving that he's not going to, he's going to be, you know, taking all his meals through a straw for a while, but he could survive. I remember noting that, noting that the beam moved kind of slow there where it felt like, yeah, it's going to take him out, but it's not going to just take his head off. No. And when you think about it, it's a, you know, kind of a, it's a tennis playing doctor that pushed that beam. So mm-hmm. it's not as though it's being moved by uh, by Dwayne Johnson or something where he's going to put some real force behind it. Um, you know, he's he's using all the force he has in his forehand 
um, to, to push this heavy, heavy beam. So I'm fine with that. Uh, it didn't really bother me all that much. Um, Same. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I really, really enjoy this movie. And it sounds like you did too, and I'm glad that you got a chance to see it. I do have some clips, though, uh, that I think are worth playing. Because there's some good, like, quotable moments in this movie. Um, oh, yeah, let's do it. So, uh, let's see. So we had, um, I do, okay, once again, I will state, and it's sort of, uh, Faye in the chat mentioned this, the Superman idea. The whole idea of, like, he shaves his beard, and he slicks his hair back, and he puts on some different clothes, and a cop who has his picture and is wandering around with it doesn't recognize him. And they have that exchange, and it goes a little something like this as he's walking past him in the hallway. Uh, what does he look like? 6'1", 180, brown hair, brown eyes, beard. See anyone like that around? Every time I look in the mirror, pal. Except for the beard, of course. Like <laughs> That moment, and the cop's just like, yeah, oh, sure. By the way, your fly is down. Um, I really liked that. Yeah, it was such a great moment. They, they did, again, that great job of ratcheting up the tension. And when he's like, oh, hey, buddy, you're like, oh, no, he's caught him. Your fly. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's believable. Like, it's perfectly believable. If you, if you, all you're looking at is a picture of a guy with a beard and you see somebody clearly without a beard, I, I, I see no reason why he shouldn't just let that go. Um, oh, cause he's, absolutely. He, I mean, and he's just walking past him. Like, it's not like he's like scrutinizing him or anything. Yeah, I mean, I used to give the the whole Superman Clark Kent thing crap, but then I heard uh, a whole story about uh, when Henry Cavill was filming Superman. If he went when he was in the Superman costume for lunch, people would come up to him and ask for autographs, ask him for you know all sorts of pictures. Mm-hmm. But when he would go in his Clark Kent costume, no one knew who he was. Yeah, uh, Harrison Ford even said in filming the movie uh, for the Fugitive the scenes in the parade because they didn't make a big deal out of it. And he just sort of slipped in. He made it quite a while before people started to recognize him. And it kind of makes sense. Like if you just see some dude, you sort of look and look away. But then if there's a camera pointed at him too, then you start to pay more attention. You start to look a little closer and that's when you might recognize him. But you could easily walk past uh, a celebrity that you've seen a, a thousand times or even somebody that you know, and it only takes a little bit to change kind of the structure of somebody's face. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, throwing a hat on and a scarf or uh, shaving a beard, it can work. Even glasses, you know. I look different when I'm wearing my glasses than when I'm not. And yeah. I'm very certain that if somebody saw me enough times without my glasses and then I'm wearing them and maybe I've trimmed my beard or something, I'm going to look a little bit different. It's going to take them a second. So... I totally buy that. Um, Let's see. Oh, here's another uh, Kimball telling. uh, This was Kimball to Copeland uh, after the crash. Hey, Copeland. Be good. I just love that. Be good. and Knowing full well, Copeland ain't going to be good. Um, That was an actor. What was his name? Because I've seen him in other movies before. He had... Again, a rather small part in uh, a movie that I really like called uh, Stir of Echoes. Do you ever see that? Uh, that one does sound familiar. That was uh, Kevin Bacon. Um, yes. Came out the same year as The Sixth Sense. And uh, like within weeks of The Sixth Sense. And so nobody went and saw it in the theater. Um, but that actor that played Copeland was in that. And he has a great moment uh, where he talks about the... Um, 
he equates being able to see the spirits for Kevin Bacon as having a flashlight. And he's in a he's in a dark tunnel with a flashlight, but the batteries are going out in it, so he's only catching glimpses. And it just it kind of always stuck with me as sort of like, what a great way to describe something like that, and the way and and also the way that the movie did it. So um, I remember him. Yeah, from that, that is a cool line. Yeah, that's a really cool line. I really love his laugh when uh, Kimball tells him to be good. Like, yeah, he just. <laughs> yep. He's that that actor has a lot of charisma. He's just got a good look to him, um, mm-hmm. and he's very. You can be very demonstrative, which is why it works so well when he grabs um, the de- the other deputy and is holding him. Um, who he's the rookie, right? So he makes the rookie mistake of like going into a room without checking it, and so he immediately mm-hmm. gets grabbed. Um, but yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. Oh, this was. I just got this because. Well, I'll play it and then I'll explain what's kind of silly about it. And the good doctor's skin is under her fingernails. During the interrogation, uh, they're they're looking at the evidence, right? And they say, you know, mm-hmm. his fingerprints are all over the lamp and are all over the gun and the bullets. And the good doctor's skin is under her fingernails. Now, the guy that read the lines had just a smooth voice, and I liked that. That's why I captured the audio. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, he lives there. So of course his fingerprints are going to be all over everything. Like that's not really pinning a murder on him. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna need more than that. I feel like. I mean yes, but they do also show intercut with that shot of the uh, one armed man with the glove on. So it's only his prints on the gun. So the gun wasn't wiped down, and his prints are on it. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. Um. Plus, I just like the way that that was uh, read. I did, I, did, I did get a couple of um, lines from Sykes himself uh, as that character who, you know, he's the one-armed man, which, again, that was right from the TV series. The TV series had him f- trying to find the one-armed man. Um, and uh, the character of Sykes in this, well, he doesn't have a huge amount of screen time. He doesn't really show up until kind of Act 3. Um, mm-hmm. I liked him a lot. Andreas Katsulas um, plays him. And uh, there was something about the way he played him. Like, again, kind of believable. He he believably tells you the lies of like, I wasn't even in Chicago. There's 15 people that can vouch for me. Like, I liked his performance for the, the short period of time that he was in it. Um, but when he's first walking up to his apartment, and of course, it's just flooded with police at this point, right? And he's walking up. Mm-hmm. And I love the the one cop says, oh, Mr. Sykes, come on in. And he just responds with, yeah, Everybody knows my name here. Big happy family, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> he, he, you can tell that's somebody who's been around police a lot as a character, mm-hmm. um, which is why it's great you get the backstory that he was a cop and, and all that because it's just, he's like, oh, yeah. Um, and, then, as, and then the next thing uh, I love because it transitions to a shot inside and you hear him in the background just like, What is this, a trench coat convention? What the hell's going on? <laughs> I love that. Um, let's see. Oh, oh, I really loved his follow-up to that where uh, Tommy Lee Jones is like, ah, your place has been robbed. Well, I sure hope you're the police. Yeah. I sure hope you're the police. He's like, well, no. Um, <laughs> also, he answers the phone in the way that only people in movies and television do, but I've always wanted to, and I've never, I've never done it. And I probably... Like I know in the day in the in the days now of caller ID you can get away with this, but back then when you didn't have that and you just a phone rang and you picked it up, and he he I love the way he answered was. 
Yeah, talk to me. Because <laughs> nobody did that in real life. Like, there's, I don't know anybody that ever actually did that, but it was always the type of thing you just wanted to do because it was cool. And so, yeah, I definitely got that one. Um, I did like the exchange. It's towards the end of the movie when they figured out something to do with Kimball, and there's that one guy in Gerard's office, kind of the wormier-looking guy, glasses, dark hair. He's never out in the field with them, um, but he's he's getting up from leaving the, the meeting, and he does this. I'll notify the press. No press. Right, no press. <laughs> he's just the yes man. Right, sure, no press, of course. Um, that cracked me up. Uh, well, and he then, doesn't want the Tommy Lee stare. No, no, I wouldn't either. Ugh. I get the shivers just thinking about that. Um, I got Cosmo. Slammed his body into the barriers that separate the drive from Lake Michigan. Yuck. <laughs> it's such a good delivery of that. Good enough that I had to get just... Yuck. And so now I have <laughs> I have that for my soundboard, which will be a lot of fun. And I did get a few of just Deputy Sam Gerard because, let's face it, it's Tommy Lee Jones. He's endlessly quotable. Um, this was a com- this was an ad libbed line that uh, I really really liked. Newman. Yes. What are you doing? I'm thinking. Well, think me up a cup of coffee and a chocolate donut with some of those little sprinkles on top, will you? <laughs> like he was rough on Newman at times in this movie, um, but he it was that like uh, it was that kind of tough fatherly love thing. Like it was one of his kids, and he just had to like smack him around, keep him in shape, keep him in line. So, uh, affectionate feel from that for his team from the very beginning. He's hard on them, but he does have affection for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a there's a an affection and a respect for them because he knows that they'll do anything. Um, mm-hmm. When when he's talking to uh, Richard Reel's character, the uh, the guard. Care to revise your statement, sir? What? Do you want to change your bullshit story, sir? <laughs> so good. Oh, um, it's so good. The way he says uh, Dr. Richard Kimball. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Uh, there's just a there's a little bit of a disdain in that doctor. Oh, yeah, there's some stank on that. So I always like that. Um, I don't remember what this one was. What are you out of your mind? He's dead. I gotta make him easy to catch. Oh, that's right. Easy to catch. <laughs> I love that line. I it's, really do. Oh, it's so good. Um, he, uh, oh, when he, uh, in the tunnel, he tells Kimball. Richard, do you want to get shot? So he tells him, <laughs> Richard, do you want to get shot? And then later on, when he's on the roof, he tells Newman to get the uh, helicopter out of there. And it's a completely different exchange of. Come on, get rid of the helicopter. Why? Because I don't want to get shot. <laughs> so he doesn't want to <laughs> get shot, and he's very clear about that. Um, I I enjoyed that. Of course, one of the most famous lines in the entirety of the movie, and it's been it's been parodied to death. It's been it's been done over and over, but it's so good. Is what I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search. Of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. It's just oh, fantastic. Like, talk about a rallying cry. So I always enjoyed that. Of course. 
I don't care. What a great response. It just worked perfectly. Um, let's see. Oh, my, the last one I had, this one, it just, it made me laugh too much. And it's right after the scene where he's gone in. Th- this is the, the bust where they find um, Copeland. And uh, he shot Copeland. And everyone's just dead quiet. And he walks into the room and that woman starts to scream again. And his oh, reaction yeah. to it is so good. Because he, he's walking in in that ridiculous hat he's wearing. Right? It's no chicken costume. Uh-huh. But it's ridiculous nonetheless. This, I think Sam Gerard as a character just likes to dress goofy like that. Um, but he walks into that room and you get... Shut up. And she just immediately <laughs> shuts up. So, oh, it cracked me up. But like, that's that's that character. And so those were some of the the better clips from the movie. But I think The Fugitive, you know, there's there's moments to laugh at it. There's moments of levity, but it's such a good tense thriller throughout. And it keeps you on the edge of your seat without having to have like it's got a it's got a twisted re- a twist reveal. Um, that uh, that Dr. Nichols is in on everything from the beginning. But it feels earned and it doesn't feel cheap to go that route. Um, Agreed. And I, I think it's just it's a, just a well-crafted movie. Um, and the original cut was a little bit longer. I don't remember how long. Not like a ton. I think it was a few minutes longer. Um, and the studio loved it. But um, Andrew Davis went in and made more cuts to shrink it back down or to get it down to the two hour and 10 minute mark, which feels like when you say that, it feels like it should be too long for a thriller, right? How do you keep the tension up for that long? But he managed to figure out how to do it. Um, and I talked at the beginning about how many writers and draft that it went through, but they also had a very short turnaround time from the end of principles photography to when it came out uh, so much so that they had, six editors on the film um, because they needed to work in like shifts and uh, the basically Warner Brothers um, gave him whatever he needed to get the editing done uh, and uh, and he did and it was I want to say the because mo- I think it got nominated for editing if I remember correctly um, at the Academy Awards and it was like the most um the most editors nominated for a single film or something like that. Like it was pretty I can crazy. Believe that. <laughs> yeah. Cause it got nominated for best picture, uh, which it didn't win, but it did win best supporting actor. It got nominated for best cinematography, which is interesting because the cinematographer, Michael Chapman apparently did not have a good time working on the film. He has since sort mm-hmm. of been like, well, you know, I'm proud of what I did, but I guess it was just he, he and Andrew um, Davis just didn't just clashed a little bit. Uh, but I think it's brilliant. I think it looks really good. Um, oh, great. They did a good job using a lot of natural light, and I think that just the overall look and feel of the movie, it feels very uh, cinematic. Um, yeah, it did. Ni- 1994 nominee for Best Film Editing, and there are six names, which is just crazy. Um, it also got nominee for Best Sound, for best effects and best music. And we didn't talk about that a whole lot, but I love the music in this movie. Yeah, it manages to never be intrusive while really ratcheting up that tension, which is the the thing the movie does so well. Yeah, it has a feel of sort of that early 90s film score. Like there's something 
time capsule about it uh, in some of the sound, but it is very tense music throughout uh, without, like you said, that's perfect. It doesn't ever intrude, it, but it's always, it's ever present. Um, and James Newton Howard did the music for this, and apparently he has said that like, he almost didn't want to do the music for it because they were using a temporary score that was some Jerry Goldsmith music, and he felt like nothing he was writing like lived up to that music. And so up until the movie was released, he thought he just did a horrible job on the music, and then he gets a nomination. Really? So huh. Some sometimes certain you know creators and performers like they can't see the forest for the trees in a, in a lot of ways when you're so close to something like that and he probably puts a high I mean James Newton Howard does amazing music um, every time I it's funny he doesn't James Newton Howard doesn't come to mind for me like a John Williams or a Howard Shore where I can like pinpoint oh yeah he did that score oh yeah he did that score but at the same time when I find out that James Newton Howard did the music in a movie I'm like oh yeah it was good music. Um, it seems to always be like that. So I think it's just a case of like putting a lot of pressure on himself um, to do something good. And then, you know, obviously it was good enough to get nominated for an Oscar. So he did something right. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of performers who struggle with their own performances, always putting, like you said, putting so much pressure on themselves that they just, nothing feels good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two, I mean, it doesn't help that he was comparing himself to Jerry Goldsmith, who's, you know, probably somebody he looked up to. In a lot of ways. Fair. And he's he's got that music going for the scenes that they were using as temp tracks that he's trying to then write music for those same scenes. So it's it's tough, but he did a fantastic job of keeping things moving and the music almost being, you know, it's cliche to say the music being a character, but it kind of is in a way um, because it's giving us a, a backdrop with the the music and the cinematography working together to create a lot of tension um, that because uh, it's a very simple story in the long run like mm-hmm. even with the the twist of like the pharmaceutical stuff at the end it's still a very simple story of just guy was wrongfully accused and he's trying to prove that he's right and so it's this confluence of everything the direction is great from Andrew Davis the performances are outstanding couple in there great cinematography great music great effects work um, all in all, like everything came together to make just a fantastic movie. So, yeah, absolutely. Like the the first half, you've got kind of that classic action movie thriller, and then it turns into more of a film noir with the chiaroscuro lighting and like all of the moral ambiguity, where you're mm-hmm. not sure who or whose side you're on anymore, or if maybe you're on nobody's side. Like it does a really good job at that switch, feeling yeah. organic. Yep. Yeah, and earned, and and. Um, never feeling cheap at any point. So I, I definitely I like that. I'm glad you got to see the movie uh, finally and kind of I mark am. that one off your list. Just a hundred more to go. <laughs> I know that feels sometimes. But now you can, uh, the next time you get the inkling to watch U.S. Marshals, you can you can realize, oh, okay, I've now, now I know even more about these characters. Like it makes more sense why Sam Gerard is who he is in that movie. Um. So yeah, I that like definitely that. would have uh, explained some things having, uh, <laughs> having watched The Fugitive first. And I think, like, you know, it's it's tough because they wanted that movie to sort of stand on its own. They didn't want to trade on the fact because it really, the the only connection to The Fugitive is the character, uh, the these characters as U.S. Marshals. But it's less important that they're part of that movie and more important to, to the story that they're telling the second time around that this is what they do. 
So it's sort of that fine line of like, you don't want to, because I think if they had made it, there are producers and there are studios that would have made it the Fugitive 2 U.S. Marshals. And something about that doesn't feel like it would have worked as well. Like, yeah, the movie wasn't really seen by a lot of people and it's just sort of forgotten. But at the same time, I feel like it would have been, it would have gone down as a terrible sequel, right? Um, because everyone would be comparing it to The Fugitive as opposed to letting it be its own thing. Um, and sometimes I gotcha. think... Yeah, I, I think sometimes... Yeah, it's more of... It, go ahead. It's almost more of an anthology than it is a sequel, kind mm-hmm. of the way you've got like uh, Season of the Witch with Halloween, which for all its flaws, I love Season of the Witch. And I do yes. feel like this the, the U.S. Marshals is kind of the same thing where it's in the same universe, in the same style, but almost a standalone movie. All right, so I think we just became best friends because um, I I am the exact same way about Season of the Witch. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's my second favorite Halloween movie. Um, That's fair. Behind only the first Halloween. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think it's just because, again, they just wanted to go in their own direction. Uh, if they had just called it Season of the Witch, which even that title doesn't really fit the story they were telling, but at the same time, it probably would have done better. Um, but... You know, it's it's one of those things where sometimes it's fun to play in that pool of a world that you've created or characters that have been created um, without it having to be a legacy of the story that was told first. And we see that more in, in book form, I think, than anything else. Like books tend to be able to get away with that a lot more, I feel, than uh, than movies for the most part have. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You have a lot more of anthologies particularly you can get like anthologies where you have multiple writers in the same universe telling Mm -hmm. similar but disconnected stories wild cards is the one that comes to my mind off right off hand yep so you know it it's pretty fun but uh but yeah i'm I'm just i'm super stoked that you got to see this and that you enjoyed it you know it's always i always hope that i show somebody a new movie especially one that that i hold in high regard um and that they're going to if not like the movie, appreciate the movie. Um, it kind of happened last week with Reservoir Dogs, where um, Aubrey from the So Wizard podcast, it was her first time seeing it, and she didn't love the movie. It didn't really speak to her on a, on like a, a level like it did for me, but she appreciated the craftsmanship that went into it and the fact that it was a directorial debut. Um, and that's, like, that's always kind of what I really hope for, but then it's great when somebody also just like, no, yeah, this is a great movie, and you, you know... I can't believe I, I slept on it for this long type of thing. It's how I was with the Shawshank Redemption. I hadn't seen that before, and I finally got around to watching it, and I was like, you people undersold this. This was better <laughs> than you said it was. So Yeah. That's one of the few I actually did get around to watching when it first came out. So Yeah, it just hit at just the right time where it sort of passed me by, uh, and that happens. That happens with a lot of stuff. So if you weren't, like you said, if your sisters weren't going to a movie, you weren't seeing it either, um, then... I can see that, but now, now you can, now you've seen it. Now you can say that you have, and the references will make even more sense. Yeah. It definitely, uh, explains some of the Simpsons references that I only <laughs> sort of understood. Oh, uh, those are good ones though. Aren't they? They those, are. Those Simpsons ones are always great. So, yep. Uh, so that was the fugitive. Now let people know kind of stuff that you're working on, what you do, where can, where can people find more NC yeah. Williams? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the main place is I am the host of the Myths Your Teacher Hated podcast. We're on six years or so. 
Uh, we tell, I say we, it's just me, uh, tell the stories of mythology, folklore, and legends from around the world with all of the sex and violence left in. So uh, these are not your Disney fairy tales. These are uh, the original, uncut, bloody, awful versions. Excellent. It's always good. I, I feel like myths and legends and fairy tales and stuff like that, uh, we've had the movement towards kind of seeing them for what they actually were uh, a lot more in recent years. So I love hearing about those because they're so different from from the perceived idea of what we think they are based on, you know, like you said, the disney version of it. So mm-hmm. that's cool. Um, and where can people find that? Uh, I've got uh, all the episodes are up at MythsYourTeacherHated.com or on any kind of podcatcher you want to find. We probably are on there. We're on Spotify, all the usual places, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all Facebook, all the fun places. MythsYourTeacherHated.com. Awesome. That's very, very cool. Well, uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, if you think of a movie you absolutely adore, send me a message. See if I've seen it before. There's a chance I haven't, and we can talk about it. Or if uh, something else comes up on a list uh, and you're just like, I need to know, I need to watch this finally, uh, hit me up. Let me know because you're welcome back anytime you want. This is a lot I will of have to look into that. Uh, based on having lived with uh, one of my roommates, I've seen a lot of very weird B-horror films. Ah. See, I'm, I'm starting – so. I've watched a lot of horror films and I've watched some pretty bad B B horror movies, but I'm watching more and more of them now on another show that I do called uh, Gore. Uh, they're making me watch a lot of stuff there, so definitely fun stuff to do. And it's always good to uh, get exposed to new things and stuff that you haven't seen before. So that's why I do this show. It's not just for my guests. Sometimes I like the one I like to be the one shown something new and broaden my horizons a little bit. It's a lot of fun. I get um, that. Yeah, I get that. But yeah, thank you so much for being on this week. This was a, a blast, um, and we'll do it again. And uh, MythsYourTeacherHated.com, go check that out. Uh, and if you like this show and uh, you want to watch it live, I record Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, stream it live, twitch.tv slash Travis. Uh, you can find it after the fact. Um, anywhere you get your podcasts, wait, you haven't seen, you can go to TVsTravis.com and find this show and other shows that I do, links to merchandise i've got a patreon for this show uh if you want to support it that way you can for as little as a dollar an episode you get things like um kind of behind see behind the curtain a little bit i do monthly movie uh catch-up nights where uh, i go through the back catalog and watch movies that people haven't seen before so then maybe they want to they skip an episode until they can watch the movie um that's a way to do that also first look at some video content that i'm working on uh, and you can find me on YouTube at TV's Travis. Any social platform at TV's Travis is going to be me, but I'm putting stuff up on YouTube, um, these shows, and i um, starting to work on some more stuff that's going to be going up there soon, so uh, check that out. Um, next week, I'm watching a movie I have never, I'd never heard of before called Still Crazy. Um, came out in 1998 and stars, uh, it's a British film, uh, stars Bill Nighy, among others, and um, uh, K-Tetch is going to come talk to me about it. So he brought it to me and uh, I'm going to watch this for the first time. So if you want to, if you want to see my reaction to a movie that I have never seen before for the first time, come on back next week. Um, so MC, thank you so much for being here. And um, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And until, until next week, remember to enjoy your movies and uh, it's a crazy world. So let's be excellent to each other. This has been wait. You haven't seen. 
Don't let him give you any shit about your ponytail either. I won't. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>